Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season of Origins is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the very beginning. They've helped us form both notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups that we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Fabrice Grinda is a serial entrepreneur and investor. He's the founder of Auckland, Zingy, and OLX. He's an angel investor and co-founder of FJ Labs, where they focus on investing in marketplaces and has backed companies like Flexport, Shippo, Lime, Brightroll, and many others. Fabrice, thank you for doing this. I think what a great place to start is uh, is just a little bit about you and where you grew up and um, how you got into the technology yeah, so I'm actually uh, French, even though I don't sound French. I was born a little bit, a little bit. I was born in uh, in Paris, but I grew up in Nice, which is in the south yeah. eastern part of France, yeah. uh, near the border with Italy. And frankly, I had an idyllic childhood, or like it's a place where it's sunny 300 days of the year. You can yeah. like play tennis every day after school. You can ski every weekend. Um, it's like the L.A. Yeah, it's kind of L.A., kind but of. it's much smaller place. It's more like Malibu or okay. like it's 400,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, when I was 10, so in 1984, I um, was introduced to PCs and computers for the first time. And it was basically love at first click. Mm-hmm. And it was a means of expressing my creativity through programming uh, and I also was lucky enough that it was a PC that was first introduced to, which ended up winning if, if you won the PC right. wars. And so started with MS-DOS and then Windows and right. um, started where, building. Where a lot of other kids you think were getting maybe Macs at that time? Or Amigas right. or okay. Commodore 64 or okay, a lot right. of the other platforms. Right. And frankly, in France, most of the kids were not getting computers, period. Right. Uh, it's just I happen to... Uh, for whatever reason, technology resonated for, with me. It allowed me to be, express my creativity through programming. I love playing video games. And and so it, it, it made a lot of sense. And So you begged for the computer? Oh, like, Your parents? Okay. I begged for the computer. Okay. And uh, well, I started, actually, first, like, my father got a computer at his office. And I started using it to do my homework because my handwriting was unreadable. Huh. And I noticed a little- it's As like a word processor. Yeah, as person. a word processor. Yeah. And yeah. I realized there was an arbitrage where if I- even though I was like the top student in, this, in the class or in the school, 
if I handed it something handwritten in an essay form, I would be in a way undergraded because my under my mm. my the quality of my handwriting was horrible. And if I handed it something that was like typed and beautifully formatted, I would be overgraded because they've overvalued the formatting. And so mm. um that also resonated with me hack. as an A plus student, you know, wanted to be the best at everything. And uh, so I backed for a computer and once I had a computer why limit yourself to word processing when there's all these other things you can do? And it also had a modem. And so I started connecting to BBSs, the Bolton board services, or the what what really was the ancestors of the internet from a consumer perspective, hmm. even though these were siloed, they were not connected right. to each other. And so it was actually doing a lot of, you know, it was really early in the tech space. And so by the time we went to college, so it was 92. So it sounds like also even yeah. at, at the first time you got a computer, you were like a little bit of a hacker. Oh yeah, absolutely. so to speak. So, oh no, I built, I assembled computers. I, I took it apart. I yeah, assembled okay. it again. Okay. I kept improving different parts. Yeah. I would build computers in my spare time for fun at the no, local computer store. I I I learned a program and I learned to build. Yep. I be able to BBS. People would connect into my BBS to exchange files and chat. So you're all in, all in from the beginning. Oh yeah, it was yeah. like love at first click. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we were meant to be together forever. Yeah. <laughs> and as an in, introverted, shy kid, which obviously doesn't come across today, but at the time was really true. Yeah. Like a computer was like my best friend. So my dog, my computer, my tennis racket, and my skis, and I was happy. The and um, yeah, so in 1992, and, and of course I grew up like reading, even though I was in France, like PC Magazine and PC Expert and Computer yep. Shopper. And I, I looked up to- Were there any other kids? No, no. No, I, okay. You were person. like really the only one. Like oh, there no. were no other kids playing with computers in Nice in no. 84. No, plus okay. in France, there was Minitel, which is this alternative. Hmm. Um, and no, but I was weird, period. Like I'd skipped a few grades. I was the top student in the class. So I was younger than everyone else. And, hmm. and my interests- I was really kind of like Sheldon from Big Bang Theory. I really only <laughs> cared about academia, reading, and knowing everything about everything and nothing mm. else. So I didn't have any friends. I didn't have a girlfriend ever. I didn't uh, mm. I didn't listen to music. I didn't watch movies. I didn't really, I didn't do anything. I studied, I got A pluses, I read, and and then I played with computers. And that was it. And but it was a very happy, fulfilled life, mm. even though I was very narrow-minded. Right. I was very deep well, I was wide in my knowledge as long as it was history and philosophy and economics or computers but I didn't know anything else about anything else I definitely knew nothing of the world hmm. um you know I buy when did that change uh, much later so much later so I, I went to Princeton in a way Princeton was more of the same for me like I I was able to continue pursuing all these intellectual path. And so I took classes right. and everything, molecular biology, computer science, multivariable calculus, right. like Russian literature, Peloponnesian Was there a war. culture shock at all? I mean, you had, you, had you, you know, you... It was a bit, yeah, but like, I didn't really partake in the, like, the college culture. Mm. I didn't drink. Right. I didn't have any friends. Okay. I was busy building, first of all, I built a computer company there, exporting computer equipment from the US to Europe. Wow. Uh, okay. B, I was still busy getting A pluses and taking right. all these crazy classes. So I actually left Princeton, even though I had the highest GPA in the school and summa cum laude and all wow. those things. Okay. I still never had friends, never had a girlfriend, never drank, never did anything that more kids typically hmm. do in um in college uh and so i was still not socialized right uh, again part of the reason being younger than anyone else and be like i was so good at this how old were you when you went to college 17 so not okay. that young but right. reasonably young right it and, sounds like maybe you also had like a commercial tick in you oh at, yeah at a pretty like if you were if you were 
exporting computer <laughs> equipment to Europe, like there was some commercial piece there as well. Well, it also stems from, you know, necessity is the mother of invention sure. and I the I needed money to pay for life and school and it's right. very expensive when especially when you come from France. Right. Uh, and you can't get um you can't get any awards or anything like that paid for you because usually if actually it's a foreign students would pay full full rack for right. people. So you can't really get financial aid. Um, and so, yeah, I worked three jobs, plus I took all the classes, plus I built the company, which frankly paid for everything. So I actually left Princeton with like 50K in the bank, post paying for everything wow. uh, because the wow. company was profitable. I was doing high-end arbitrage or gray market arbitrage. I would buy PC, you know, well, not PCs that are too big and expensive, but like processors like the um, Intel 386 or, or hard drives or motherboards, like high-valued, low-weight items that I could ship from hmm. the U.S. to Europe, and I would sell them to retail stores there. Now, of course, right. it was a sole proprietorship. It's like a little LLC. It was, I had no employees. I didn't know how to manage anyone. Uh, so it didn't really build a lot of real business skills other than yeah. like, you know, accounting, incorporating, and, yeah. you know, paying taxes, yeah. like things that I didn't know how to do before, but it just paid for life. It was like I needed it in order to succeed. Now, I was lucky in, in a way that the in 1993, so one year in as a sophomore, Princeton started putting T1 lines essentially in our in mm. our dorm room. So we're in a world where the modems were like 19,600, not even 57.6. Yep. And I have like 10 megabit in my room. Now that's pre-mosaic. And so there's not very much to do with it. But I was like on Usenet, uh, which were the the news groups and on IRC and like the yeah. ancestors of the internet, if you want. And so I was really on the ground floor of seeing it be born, but I was like 18. And who were the users? I mean, mainly probably folks connected to university yes, systems, right? Mostly yeah. university students yeah. uh, and, or researchers that were, right. that were in the early days. And, and the conversations were, you know, it was like debating and like the merits of like the various protocols or OS2 versus yeah. Windows or whatever. So it was like OS wars were being fought and flame wars. It was actually really fun. The, the And I is, imagine really small communities, like everybody knew each other's handles. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. yeah a tiny community, uh, but really fun. And then Mosaic was born and that did created you, the World did Wide you, Web. Did you find... Like if you met someone today and they were and they told you their handle from those oh yeah early days yeah no, we, like oh yeah I remember yeah, you no, like 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 for instance I played a video game which was called Warcraft two which was sure. only in uh, which was only in IPX which was a land based technology but some company called Cali had created this uh, TIP, TCPIP tunneler that could convert IPX to TCPIP so we could play on the on the web or online oh wow and so but I was Cali user seven right like so all of us knew each other and we're like kind of like hmm. and, and we're like playing competitively before esports and pro gaming etc existed so it was really really fun times and when did you think of yourself as an so you're doing all these entrepreneurial things you're dabbling yeah when did you think about for the first time actually building a company as a as an entrepreneur well, After college. No, I, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur before okay. I went to college. I knew okay. I wanted to be an entrepreneur while in college and actually went to McKinsey knowing I wanted to be an entrepreneur and thinking I might miss the tech bubble. The issue is I graduated from Princeton. I was 21. It mm -hmm. was 1996. So Mosaic was born. Netscape had gone public. Mm -hmm. uh, Yahoo, Amazon, all these things existed. Right. And it felt like, oh, man, I might have already missed it. Wow. It, it didn't, it's not that. It's more like it's happening right now. The problem is I'm 21. I'm shy. I have no hmm. social skills. I have no business skills per se. You know, if I create a startup, most likely it's going to fail. If I join a startup, who's going to take me seriously? Hmm. And, 
And so maybe I should learn business. I should learn like to be a bit more socialized and yeah. understand what, what it takes. And so I joined McKinsey thinking I would miss the bubble. And um, turns out- But, I mean, but feeling like you needed those skills yeah. to go build a company. And did you did you find that there? Yes and no. So I think all three would have been okay, meaning I could have created a company and failed and that would have the school of right. life would have been amazing. Right. Could have joined a company and the reality is in, if you join an early stage startup, there's so much to be done if you prove yourself. The, you, the opportunities are also boundless to grow and rise and ultimately leave and create your own company. Uh, McKinsey was really great because I'd always been in an environment where if you did, re if you worked really hard and if you were really smart, you could, you would get a pluses like the, in school, right? Like that, what you need to do to succeed is very well defined. Yeah. That's actually not true in entrepreneurship. Uh, and when I got to McKinsey, it wasn't about being smart. In order to succeed in life, you also have to have things like emotional intelligence, empathy, the ability to work in teams, the the ability to explain complex thoughts in simple words, and all these skills were skills that were hmm. profoundly lacking. And so even though in many settings I thought, oh, and I was really arrogant at the time, so I really thought that, oh, I'm maybe the smartest guy in the room, and yet the least successful from a effectiveness perspective because I could not hmm. work in teams and explain myself particularly well. Were you as, but it sounds like you were self-aware of those things. Oh, absolutely. That's as much I, then as, as now. Yes. Which I guess enabled you ultimately to learn those, the rest of those skills. I was like, it, if you hadn't yes. been as self-aware of those things, do you think you I was arrogant, but self-aware of my limitations mm -hmm. and the, and so it was useful. Uh, and I actually, and McKinsey's great. I mean, they gave me, they, they, if they sign you up, if you're up for it, public speaking classes or on written communication right. skills workshops. And, and plus you work with all these amazing people. So two years in, I'd done what I, I felt I'd learned what I, I needed to learn. And um, I was, the bubble had not burst yet. So I'm like, okay, I'm still in the right. right time, right place, right skills. So it was like 98? 98, 98. Okay. So July 17, 1998, to be precise, I'd left McKinsey and built my first startup, which was this eBay for Europe. Right. Um, and called Auckland. Called Auckland. And it, yes. was, and it was amazing. And um, How did you come to that idea? Was it as simple as, oh my God, eBay in the United States is like the poster child for the dot-com success story and I'll go do that? Not really. Well, I, the pro, the process of finding an idea was arduous because so I was at McKinsey, which is an amazing place to be because you have all these clients who, who frankly are all old school. So like, okay, what are the opportunities for reintermediation or disintermediation? Hmm. What new things you can do? The problem was more, what can I do in the constraints of a 21 year old with reasonably limited or 23 year old, sorry, at that point in time with reasonably limited capital? Because if you want to build Amazon, you need like supply chain management right. skills and warehouses and inventory. You need to raise billions of dollars. If you want to rebuild E-Trade, you need to like a banking license. To get a banking license, you need credibility and you need to put like 10 million bucks stuck at the central bank, you know, in reserve. And so the capital efficient requirements were really high. And at Princeton, I studied economics and I'm always fascinated by economics as a means of explaining the way the world worked. And so I loved marketplaces and the way markets worked. Hmm. And when I came across eBay, not as a poster child, because frankly, the poster child at that time were more Amazon or E-Trade or, mm, okay. or Yahoo for that matter, right. not really eBay. But I came across the site of eBay and I was like, wow, this makes a lot of sense. We're taking markets that were fragmented, where liquidity is lacking, which were completely opaque, and we're bringing transparency, discovery, and it makes the world a much more efficient place for finding a little bit of everything and anything. And it made yep. a lot of sense. And I was not at that time particularly creative. And I'm like, you know, the easiest idea is like take this and bring it to Europe, mm -hmm. um, which um, 
Did and, you did you need to? You still needed to raise capital. Yes, capital though back then because because you know you didn't have AWS. I mean you you had to oh it was like way build harder your own build servers there. and oh yeah data center and you yeah. to launch a business you needed millions right I mean, okay so so but I did start with uh, I had capital so the fifty k I had post Princeton. I did two things. One, I, I bought the stock market. I put, uh, uh, I put, .coms. I put yeah, 25K that's, that's in uh, Intel, Microsoft, Yahoo, and Amazon. And amazing. that made, became 300K. Amazing. Uh, and yeah. then I bought a one-bedroom apartment in New York for 115K. And I put 25K down. The rest I borrowed. And I sold it for 185, 18 months later. Amazing. And so the net of taxes, I had 300K. So amazing. my seed funding was my 300K. <laughs> I put everything I had in the right. company, which was barely enough to get us there. Uh, but then the bubble, and, and at first- It was and, able to turn, you were able to turn the lights on with that. Turn the lights on because you need, actually need to, I mean, it's so different then. We, you needed to build the computers right. and build your own data center right. and get like- uh, But that was enough. Oracle, to do SQL. That. Yeah, it was enough. Okay. It was enough. Um, and fortunately, uh, eBay filed for IPO. So they their S1 became the basis of my business one. So I actually replicated their org chart. I'm like, oh, they have category managers for the following wow. categories. Let's just do the same thing. Amazing. Let's yeah. be deliberate about how do you right. build liquidity. The sellers are financially motivated to be in the platform. We'll start on the supply side to solve the chicken neck problem. Uh, let's, um, let's get PR. Let's do some marketing to get the demand side. Let's match supply and demand. And so we were more deliberate about how we went about building the business. And than you, maybe did you launch others. in a specific country? In France. Europe? Oh, and being French, I I launched in France. And every VC in the world at that point that turned me down, in the US, no one wanted to invest outside of the US, which kind of made sense. And the French VCs had never written real checks. But finally, as the bubble inflated and we started getting a lot of press coverage, I started making the cover of like all these magazines. In France. In France, yeah. Yeah. So I became a superstar in France because- 24-year-old CEO. So it, you launched and it, and it worked. And it worked. Like you got enough supply on the platform. Yep. It was growing. There was liquidity. So, it was working. Yeah. So I raised $18 million in um, in 1999, in June 99, like uh, six months after. So nine months after I came up with the idea and we launched in like March, but we started getting liquidity and doing really well and getting a lot of press. And it was the biggest raise at that point in France that France had wow. ever done. And I was 24. Wow. So... That led to even you, more. Press. How did you get the first sellers? The so I created this. I hired a sales team. Okay, and decided. Okay, what are the categories that need this liquidity? And so we went to all the long tail stores of coins and stamps and collectibles hmm. and comic book stores and and record companies for used goods and convinced them to put their inventory hmm. online. I told them, look, I don't really have much buyers, but it doesn't cost you anything to list. Um, it's more demand for you if, if it works and you'll be part of a fun new adventure. And, and so with that sales pitch where you don't create such high expectations yeah. and for them, it's more revenue. So if it works, the sellers say yes. And once you have that, you start getting SEO, you can start doing marketing against it. You start getting PR and people thought it was cool. And there was a lot of free press to be had in those days because, uh, it, it, a, the internet was a story in and of it itself, but B, I was also pretty compelling. Like this 24 year old, you know, when McKinsey, Princeton, come back, back to bring right. internet to the masses in France, <laughs> the, it, it, it sold well. Uh, and I used it for, I milked it for all it was worth. What were some of the harder lessons, I guess, as the company began to grow? Or was it just like rocket ship from the start and right moment, right time, right lessons? I mean, like in some ways, 
Was the lesson like, hey, this is easy? No, <laughs> like, not this at is all. easy to be an Everything entrepreneur. Was hard. First, I mean, no one believed in it at the beginning. My parents told me it was okay. crazy to leave yeah, McKinsey. Right. right. Uh, that I was going to fail. I never failed in anything in my life. It was crush me. Mm. The every VC I talked to in France, the, the average VC raise then was like half a million or a million, and I was asking for like ten, right? You know, because I was just copying the U.S. types of raises, and I had larger ambitions. I thought we we should go mass market. We should do TV ads, et cetera. So no, I got a hundred knows before I got the first yes. Okay. The the life lessons learned though along the way where first of all the so the VCs really wanted us to hire gray-haired managers who had experience, et cetera. And I, I listened to them because of their experience. It was actually a mistake. Uh, hmm. They worked by consensus and and they took they basically slowed down decision-making. And does that mean you actually hired a CEO above you? Or no. that means you surrounded yourself? It means I hired with, a CFO, a CMO, okay, right. a, et cetera. Uh, and I hired a COO. And all of these hires were mistakes because even though they had the right pedigree, they wanted consensus to get to the right answer. And I realized like doing something, even if it was the wrong answer and then, and then course correcting was actually more effective. Second thing is I never seen a stock purchase agreement in my life. I never, you know, so I didn't know how to negotiate my term sheet. So I, I thought, oh, I negotiate the valuation and the amount of money raised done. But in fact, when you negotiate an, a stock purchase agreement or, or a fundraise, you have like drags, tag along, piggyback, anti-dilution, all these things. And what I did not have was a drag along right. And so when eBay came to buy us for like 300 million and I had 40% of the company and I was like 24, I was like, yes, of course we have to sell. The company's not worth 300 million. Um, my majority shareholder said, no, like I don't want to sell to him or ever, frankly, because I have, I'm the richest guy in Europe or the second richest guy in the world these days, uh, Bernard No, He's like, I'm not in it for the money. This is fun, interesting. I like having my name associated wow. in the press. So wow. we're not selling. And so that's when I realized, holy shit, we have like a massive misalignment of interest or conflict of interest because he's not a real VC and I should have taken money from VCs who want to make money as opposed so Bernardo, to- Bernardo, no, that was the biggest investor. Yeah, well, it was his fund called Europe at Web. So what'd you do? Um, so ultimately, well, we we agreed to disagree, uh, and ultimately, I convinced him to buy me for peanuts. But we he made us he made us sell to a company that whose stock sadly fell ninety nine point ninety eight percent. Oh my god! And for but because he didn't understand the difference in models, one was on the it was auctions, but it was auctions of new items for starting at a dollar. Like it's in the U.S., the equivalent is on sale or U bid companies that went under. eBay was a much better model, but. Uh, he was a shareholder in the other one. He thought it made more sense, et cetera. Like, and I couldn't convince him otherwise. And so the stock of that company fell 99.98%, basically lost everything. And wow. so I came, including, you know, my reputation as the golden child of like the internet publicly, wow. very publicly in France when, you know, failed or flamed out uh, of this. And, um, you know, thought long and hard, what do I do next? Um, having essentially missed what I thought was the biggest opportunity in my life to be, to succeed, given that for once uh, young people were in a position to succeed early and I'd been in the right time or the right place with the right skills. And these bubbles don't come along very right. often and they rarely come along twice in the same right. category. And so I thought long and hard, like, do I go back to McKinsey? Do I go to business school? But I'm like, you know, I didn't do this to make money. I like building something out of nothing. I like right. being an entrepreneur. I like not having a boss. I'm not sure I'm employable. I don't like structure <laughs> and, and people to report to. Um, let's be an entrepreneur again. And I built Zingy. So I was like, the one thing I want to be is an entrepreneur. And I will compromise on anything and everything to be an entrepreneur. Meaning, 
I will do an idea that I so I that I don't like. So I didn't like Zingy. I didn't like selling ringtones. I didn't I didn't think the products were value added as society. I didn't like working with the music publishers. I didn't like working with the artists. I didn't like working with the music labels. I did not like working with the phone carriers. I did not like the products I was selling. And I yeah, and this was your second company. It was my second company. I didn't like anything about it in any way, shape, or form, except I thought I could build this and make it profitable in a world where capital was constrained. And therefore, given that the only thing I cared about was being an entrepreneur and not necessarily what I was building, I was willing to compromise on everything for that constraint. Now, obviously- And this was out of the dot-com well, Yeah, the bubble bust. It was and bust. so there was no capital available. People weren't investing in internet businesses anymore. So you had to figure out a different way to-, to forge the path. Yeah. So in fact, yeah. when I, in 2001, I would call VCs and tell them I'm doing B2C telecom when every B2C company had gone under, every telecom company had gone under. I don't think I'd finished a sentence that like they'd hung up. But I thought this was a product because it was successful in the rest of the world, would eventually come to the US and would be profitable and would do well. And I had the skill set required to, to build it. And so I'm like, you know, I don't love it. And in, in life... It, ideally, you pursue ideas you love and, and and things that make sense, but you need to be aware of the constraints you live by, right? Like, so uh, if you are an entrepreneur in Somalia, maybe you're a pirate, you know, and it just so happened when it was post-dot-com right. bubble uh, in a world where capital is not available. I'm like, okay, with no money, what can I build that can be profitable quickly? And I and of all the ideas I thought of, this one I thought A, I could execute, B was not going to be competitive. Um, and C, I could build with very little capital. And even then it was really hard. I mean, I invested every last penny I had. I borrowed on my credit cards. I missed payroll 27 times. Wow. You know, I was like loved on the couch of the office. I could for two years I basically couldn't afford even coffee. I'd like lived off not the literal ramen noodles because that's all I could afford for to eat. You know, right. amazing diet. I mean, not from a health quality perspective, but from losing yeah. and this you was know, back in the US. Back in the US. So I came back in New York in 2001. Okay. So I was in New York. So I was at Princeton until 96. So I was in New York for McKinsey, 96, 98. Went to France just to build, and Europe. I mean, it was ultimately a pan-European company to build Auckland, 98, 99, 2000. And came back in New York and started Zingy July 2, 2001. Uh, plus we were like, I lived on Broad Street. Uh, so then I'd be evacuated during 9-11. I mean, it was like all those disasters. So for two years where we were not profitable and it took for it took forever to get there because none of the phone carriers in the US believed in text messaging, which in hindsight looks ridiculous, but like they didn't believe you needed interoperability. They yep. didn't believe you should have online pay- payments in the mobile in the mobile phones. So it took them it took me years to convince them to do all these things that we were the right pro- partner to provide to 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 provide them with content, etc. But because they were kind of lemmings once we had the first contract with Sprint they kind of all signed hmm. and we literally went from like a million of revenues in 02 to 1 million the first nine months of 03 to 4 million Q4 of 03 because wow. we'd signed the carriers and, and profitable. So we became profitable. The most meaningful date in my intramural journey actually is August 15, 2003, because we got the check from Sprint for the first quarters of payments for working with them and made us profitable. And until then, I mean, I'd stopped paying employees like four months before. Wow. And we went from 27 people to seven people because when wow. you stop paying people, they stop showing up for work for some yep. reason. Yep. <laughs> um, the and, and it saved us and allowed us to basically build from a position of strength because once you're profitable, you're a master of your own destiny. You no longer need to rely on anyone sure. else. It actually was a sad day at the same time because employee number two and three who were 
somewhat older. They had families and mortgages and kids actually left that day. And I'm like, look, we're saved. We're profitable. It will never happen again that I don't pay you for four months in a row. The thing is, I may, I, not me, I had told them that story many times before. The mm. difference is in the past, it was not true. This mm. time it was true. But like, you know, that it's did like, you think about giving up in um, those couple years? I thought we might die, but I was going to try sure. my hardest not to. And so I didn't think of giving of, of of giving up. I thought we might go bankrupt along the way. I mean, the, the music labels didn't want to give us the licenses, so we violated many copyright laws. And we had to settle all of them. I and mean, we were being sued for billions of dollars from that. Wow. Uh, it took, but I would call the lawyers who would send me these cease and desist. like, oh, I'm so excited that you reached out. I've been meaning, <laughs> I've been trying to reach out and, and do a deal with you guys forever. Uh, and, and frankly, it was ridiculous. I was like, I wanted to pay them. I wanted to have yeah. a logical economic license with them. I wanted to make them money. And, but because I was a non-entity in the music industry, they didn't want to give me a license. And even though this was a, the category that was generating more revenues in the rest of the world than like sales of records, because there was so much piracy. And so ultimately what I'd done is I violated all the copyrights, but I actually kept a record of what I was supposed to pay. Actually, even for many of them, I was paying them. I was actually thinking, okay, wow. a mechanical- Like you would just send them a check. I would send them a check. Like, we don't have a deal. And you just And most send of them, them would cash them, actually. <laughs> and so I told them, look, we have an imply, implicit contract. Uh, I'm paying what the mechanical rates are and you're cashing the money. But ultimately, because I never put any cash in the money and the company and it was not profitable, it would cost them more money to sue me, to turn me off than actually to settle with me. So I would tell them, hey, yeah. Look, A, I've paid you. B, I think I should be paying you. I and I have a record. And if you want, I have 10K here right now to settle. And I have this default contract, which everyone else is using in other categories. We should do it. And so by violating all the laws, we ultimately in being sued. I mean, the, the copyright penalty, I don't remember what it is if it's 150K or 250K per download. So right. they would like sue me for like a hundred billion yeah, dollars. Yeah, yeah, right. The thing is, you can't shave an egg. I had nothing. So there was nothing they could take. And, uh, but ultimately we got all the licenses, we got all the carriers and, um, we were off and running. And then the company went from 5 million revenues in 03 to 50 in 04 to 200 in 05. Wow. Uh, but I didn't like the category. And when someone, and, and a lot of people started trying to buy us once we were profitable. And I kept saying, no, no, no. I've like too busy growing the company as we went from like seven employees to 250 basically in like a year wow. and moved offices seven times. Every time we'd move in and be like, oh, we'll never aggro this place. And like three months later, like we need wow. bigger offices. Yeah, because we kept signing more and more carriers. People kept buying more and more of the products because all of a sudden payments became inter- integrated and mm. sort of working better. But then a Japanese company came in and said, hey, we'd like to buy you for $40 million in cash. And I own like half the company. And I'm like, okay, this is real money. It's time to think of that this seriously. So I hired a banker. We ran an auction. And then they won. And we sold for eighty. And this time in cash, uh, having learned my lesson from the yeah. dot-com days. And, um, and I still stayed on for 18 months because it was actually interesting. Being part of a publicly traded company for the first right. time. Having to deal with like actually create SOX compliance, section 404, be doing proper accounting, being audited. Like I figured these would be useful skills for the future. Uh, but then I didn't like the companies, the, the company that bought me. I didn't like the, they didn't want, I had the option to buy like Shazam for like a million dollars and they said no. And I had the opportunity to buy like all these different companies. Hmm. And, but instead they took all the profits and would send it to Japan. So I'm like, look, if you just want to manage it or milk it for cash, you don't need me for that. So I left in late 05, knowing already what I wanted to build, which is my next company, which is OLX. I want to talk about FJ Labs a little bit, um, but we were talking before uh, we started recording about 
um, some of the work that maybe you do with FJ Labs now and um, and 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 primarily around like how do you come to the idea? Like you've you you came to a few in in Auckland and OLX and and Zingy, um, and and we were talking a little bit about also like as an entrepreneur how you start quickly now and how that's changed yeah. over the last ten to fifteen years. So I'm just curious, like as you meet lots of founders now through your work at FJ Labs, I want to talk about it. Like how do you typically? advise folks to go about those things? Yeah. So first of all, clearly company creation has been democratized. When I right. first started Auckland, we needed hundreds of thousands of dollars just to turn the lights on. And also the labor you need to hire was much larger. Like our tech team was two-thirds infrastructure, building computers, building a data center, managing Oracle licenses and Microsoft web servers. All that's gone. I mean, today with 50K, you can literally build anything. And, and so with fools, friends, and family money, you can get a product out of the door. And that's created a revolution or an, a, in, in entrepreneurship because now you have tech centers in New York and L.A. and Chicago, yeah. frankly, in Austin and in Miami and, and around the world and in, in Paris, in, in Paris, in Berlin and London and yeah. Sweden, Stockholm, in a, in a way that was impossible or true back in the day because you needed capital and skills and people that were only really available in the valley. Um, in terms of how to evaluate ideas and how we think about it, the well, first there's the first principles, like what are the large categories where the user experience is broken for the consumers, where you can use, in our case, marketplaces to reinvent the user experience ideally with a better business model for all. And the thing is, given where we are in the tech cycle, it's actually true of almost all categories. I mean, your banking relationships are broken, insurance is broken, credit cards are broken, like all these things have very low NPS, and we can improve the user experience through mm. through tech. Now, how do you decide if an idea is good or not once you come up with the idea? We... So we use four heuristics or four types of, uh, of evaluation criteria, um, one of which is the one that entrepreneurs should use for themselves. So for us at FJ, if you come and pitch us, we're going to evaluate in the basis of two one-hour meetings at most whether or not we invest. So we decide very quickly. And Well, let's back up for just one sec. FJ Labs is a is a... It's a hybrid team? startup studio and venture fund okay. where we invested about 100 startups, mostly in the marketplace space per year, mostly at seed, mostly in the US. And 100 per year? 100 a year. And you'll make a decision within two one-hour meetings. And if I'm in the meeting, usually one one-hour meeting, and I'll right. decide whether to invest or not. And and this came out actually of a, out of OLX because by virtue of being a consumer-facing internet CEO, a lot of young entrepreneurs came asking for advice and money. And I was super busy managing a 5,000-employee, sure. yeah. 50-country company traveling around the world. I'm like, okay. And you had you made angel, angel investments to oh, date? Like, yeah. At that time, when I left OLX, I already had over 100 angel investments. Oh, okay. And so I decided, okay, I need to find a – I want to do this. I think it's actually massively positive for humanity. Plus, you're helping entrepreneurs fulfill their dreams. Let's, let's create this set of heuristics that allows me to evaluate companies quickly. And so I'm like, I'm only going to do things I understand – so marketplaces, and I'm because in marketplaces I understand how you build. Is that liquidity. right? Is that true today? It's still true. Only today. marketplaces, mostly okay. marketplaces. I'll okay. say today. Yeah, and and the reason is, and when it comes to marketplaces, we've seen so many of them, and we've invested in so many of them. Now, like if you come and ask, like, how, do I start at the supply or the demand side? Am I hyper local or national? Do I take one percent or five percent or fifty percent? 
we can actually help you answer those questions. And we have enough pattern recognition on like what works, what doesn't work that we can be a helpful and be evaluated very quickly if it's, it makes sense or not. Yep. Um, and so came up with the heuristics at that time while I was running uh, OLX. And then in 2013, I'm like, you know, I like investing companies. I like building companies. Let's create a structure that allows me to be bo- to do both and created the genesis of what is today at FJ Labs. Though FJ Labs officially was created in 2016, but frankly, in a way, it's what I've been doing my entire life. It's in, 20, in 98 when I started build, when I built my first company, I started investing then as well. And so and nothing has changed all that much. I still right. do marketplaces. I still use the same criteria. And in fact, the same criteria I used to come up with Auckland are the criteria we use today to evaluate startups. And so the criteria, I'll give you the criteria we use as a VC to evaluate companies and the, the, the four top level of them. And I'll tell you the one specifically as an entrepreneur you should use for yourselves to evaluate whether or not you should start a company. So one um, do we like the team? Now, the thing is, every VC will tell you, I invest in extraordinary people. And, yeah, exactly. But what is an amazing team? What is an amazing team? What is an amazing entrepreneur? And we've thought long and hard, but like, what are the skill sets that ultimately lead you to succeed? And for us, it's threefold. One is, are you an amazing storyteller? If you can sell a story, you have such a comparative advantage. You yep. raise capital at higher valuations and it's easier for you to raise it. You get more press, you hire better people, you you get better business deals. Uh, number two, and for us, it's absolutely quintessential. Are you numbers driven? Do you understand the margin of the business? Do you understand the the size of the business, your average, their contribution margin, your unit economics, et cetera? And the thing is the Venn diagram between the people that are amazing storytellers and are also analytical and numbers driven is really small. Mm. And so that eliminates a lot of the founders mm. we talk to. And then three, have you demonstrated grit and tenacity at, in different ways or in elements in your life? Um So that's what's the team for us. Um, Number two, and that's the one where if you're evaluating a company would be the criteria I would use is do we like the business you're in? And and it's objective. It's like, what is the total total addressable market size? What is the business model? Is the market rising because a rising tide raises all boats? Um, How capital efficient is it? Does it, but of those, the most important metric we follow is your unit economics. Do you have positive unit economics? And or and, and by that, I mean, on a net contribution margin basis, do you recoup your fully loaded customer acquisition CAC costs or your CAC in six months? Do you 3X your CAC in 18 months at least? And ideally, we don't even know what the long-term value of the customers are because even though you may have churn, the remaining customers buy more and more. And so ultimately, your LTV may be 10X or 20X, et cetera. Okay. Now, if you're not live, um, which, of course, if you're a, a, an aspiring entrepreneur, you're not live. You better have a sense of what your theoretical unit economics are. So you should know what is the average order value in the industry. And you should probably expect that your numbers are going to be the average of the mm-hmm. industry. What is the cost structure you're going to have in terms of cost of goods sold? So you know what your net contribution margin is. You get a sense of what the recurrence in the industry is. And you can probably expect that you're going to be in the mean in that industry. So you get a sense of what your revenue and your net contribution margin looks like. And then you have to compare that to your customer acquisition costs. And with very little money, with $100, set up a landing page, buy some keywords to that tra- to that landing page on Google and Facebook, see what your CPC is, see what your conversion rate of people signing up for that opportunity is, and then make estimates. Oh, maybe 5% right. of these or 2% of these or 10% of these are going to buy. What does it look like? And by the way, as I'm looking at these acquisition channels, is their density. Could I actually spend 
a million a month in marketing in order to scale. Because sometimes the keywords, there's enough of them that the business works when you're spending 50K a month. Yep. But there's actually not enough for you to spend a million a month. And so that creates a ceiling in your business. If you've done all of that, and the unit economics look promising, we would invest. Now, of course, most people that come to us, they're at what we would consider the seed stage, which means on average, they have, they've already raised a million in the pre-seed or angel stage, and they've spent that money to get to 150K a month in gross volume. Now, they take 15%. And their net revenues are tiny. They make 20, yeah. 30K a month. Um, but they have already unit economics. So either unit economics are there, and we invest, we give them money and the seed round, they typically raise three to eight pre- in order to scale, or if their unit economics are not quite there yet, they better have a very compelling story as to why they're going to get there based on density. Oh, once we have two deliveries per hour instead of one, or cost structure is such that all of a sudden the margin will increase and we're going to be able to have the unit economics that we're aspiring for. Uh, number three, um, we care about valuation. So it, are you is the valuation reasonable in light of... Uh, the size of the opportunity, the stage of the company, and the capital requirements, understanding that you're going to be much better received if you fall into where the VCs, the VC ecosystem or life cycle is. So the way in our world, um, marketplaces, the, the, um, it works today is your pre-seed round, uh, so you're just live or you're about to go live, you're pre-launch, you're raising 1 million at three to five free. Mm-hmm. With that, we expect you to get a 150K a month in GMV, and you're raising then 3 million at eight pre. Um, then with that, you get a 650K a month in GMV for your Series A, and you raise 7 million at 18 pre, 25 posts. And with that, you get a 2.5 million a month, and you raise your Series B of 20 million at 50 pre. And if those are the type of capital requirements you have, and these are the type of expectations you have, and you have good unit economics, you're going to get funded. If you fall really far out of that, those lines, uh, it's harder. Now, of course, if you ha- are a third time successful entrepreneur yeah. and your opportunity is massive and you maybe the circumstances are different or, but for most people, this is the mean, yeah, let's say. That's what we see too. And then four, does it meet our thesis? And we are thesis driven and we have three theses right now. What are those? So right now we're investing in verticalizing the horizontal platform. So verticalizing Upwork, Thumbtack, Uber Eats, or seamless hmm. Grubhub, verticalizing Craigslist, verticalizing eBay. So hmm. for instance, we're investors in a company called Reverb. They're a music instrument marketplace and they're doing 600 million a year in GMV. Wow. We're investors in Slice, which is a Uber Eats for pizza, if you want. They're doing 400 million a year in wow. GMV. And, and these are a lot larger than people expect. Number two, reinventing the old school platforms with better user experiences. And this is actually a trend that I would, I encourage many people to pursue in both B2B and, 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 and B2C. Let me give you an example. Um, the old school way of hiring a software developer for a project is you go to Upwork. You say, oh, I need a full stack Python developer. You get 300 people to apply. You have to filter through them. You need to interview them. You need to negotiate with them. It's a lot of work or whatever. I go to Thumbtack. I want a plumber or I want to yeah. do my floor. Or I need a GC. All these things require a lot of work from you. The new model is what we call the marketplace pick model, where the, the marketplace curates your supply and mm. says, this is the person you need to work with. You don't need to do any of the work. Trust us, we've done the work. Now, of yeah. course, the marketplace needs to actually do a really good job of that. But that's a trend that's happening 
And the, most folks, I, I think a lot of folks are referring to that as managed marketplaces in some way. The thing is, is managed marketplaces can mean a lot of things. Uh, right, yeah. Uh, this is kind of the dispatch model. I mean, but like Uber, you don't pick your driver. Yeah, right, sure. But we're doing this not just for commodity jobs, but for everything. Like you want to hire uh, yep. a- Interior designer. Exactly. Yep. Um, and then- And they say, here you go. And number three, B2B marketplaces. So in the B2B world, it's still done pen and paper, Rolodex, Excel, email relationships, whereas- now you can have uh, marketplaces for fish. You know, so we're investors in Proxy, which is a, a marketplace between the fisheries and hmm. supermarkets. We're investors hmm. in a petrochemical marketplace. We're, in, we're investors in a marketplace that allows oil services companies to find welders for um, for for the right. oil platforms. I mean, there's so many of these, and the opportunities are larger than people think. Like. We're investors in a dump truck driver marketplace, and that's a thirty-seven billion dollar a year market wow. year that people would not think of normally. So these are the big three trends. That Have we're you raised in. funds for FJ Labs, or it's or it's personal capital or friends and family capital? How does that work? Yeah, so FJ Labs started really as personal capital and friends and family capital, but yep. then the very people that I didn't been competing with back in the day of OLX said, "Hey, we now own all these." Uh, uh, sites and in hmm. marketplaces and classifies, we want a looking glass into the future. We want to hmm. know what's going on in the U.S. to either bring it to our countries or defend against it. And so Telenor, which is a large Norwegian telco, which owns these marketplace assets in Southeast Asia, became a first LP, in, which actually led to the formal creation of FJ Labs in um, in January of 2016. So fund one was just $50 million of their money. Um that was done by by January 2018. And so fund two, which we're investing out of right now, is $150 million of external capital plus our capital. And the external capital is basically all the, um, all the strategics who could potentially buy our companies or value the fact that we're right. in marketplaces. That so makes a lot of sense. People like Axel Springer or Recruit yeah. or, or Telenor. And then like family offices of... Uh, the big retail chains that are being disrupted by tech and marketplaces. So they're interested in knowing what's going on. And so, but to date, we've deployed over 200 million and kind of half is our capital. So it really started as like personal capital doing things I loved. And we've added a little bit of external capital, but we're still small. I mean, because we don't lead, because we don't prize, because we don't take board seats, we see ourselves as the really friendly value add player to both the VCs and to the entrepreneurs. And as such, we can't be actually taking too much allocation that the VCs see us as competing with them. Like, we're the VCs' friend and ally. We give them our perspective on things we really know, and we bring them a lot of deal flow because, of course, all the seed-funded companies that we back need to go and get an A and a B and a C, um, and the entrepreneurs love us as well. Could you tell us about your downgrade? Yeah, that was a lifestyle choice. <laughs> I, I remember reading about it a couple of years and I don't know if we've, I don't think we've talked about it. So I'd love to yeah, hear your perspective and maybe speak to what it, what, what that means. Yeah. The, downgrade. It's a reflection on, okay, how do, did I allocate my time and what did, what did, what did I do my free time and how did I lead my life? And in a way, well, at the same time as I was CEO of OLX that I had the trappings of success for me external validation perspective. I also had the trappings of success in my personal life with the McLaren orange race car and like the penthouse apartment and the massive uh, country estate in Bedford. Um, and it was actually a really good life. Um, but I thought that it, when you have things, they own you and they take a lot of time. Like, so because I have a country house, I would go there every weekend, even though in a, in a world absent that, I would not allocate that much time to going there, especially in the winter where there's really nothing to do. And and I realized I really like 
my friendships, my experiences, and so my my family more than handling these things. Where and these things are taking an infinite amount of time. Like the solar panels would break, the electricity mm-hmm. would go down. I'm like, right. you know, let's remove all of these constraints from my life to allocate time. Especially as I felt that my friendships were fraying, not because my friends were and I would go distant. It's just as you get older and you start, you know, people start having kids and families and jobs, they get busy. And mm-hmm. where I would see my McKinsey friends seven days a week or five days a week or my Princeton friends all the time. By then, I see my friends every other month. And when you see someone every other month, when you see them, it becomes a biographical update. Oh, right. since the last time since I saw you, yep. this is what my husband is up to. My kids are up to my job. And it's nice, but it doesn't have the same level of depth as the nights you were spending remaking the world when you were seeing each other often enough that you didn't need to talk about what was going on in your lives because you would know what was going on in mm-hmm. your life. And so I'm like, you know what? How about I give up all of these things um, go down to like 50 items that fit in my carry-on and my and my and uh and my backpack, and I just go reconnect my friends by like living on their couches. And so decrease <laughs> my amazing. cost structure by so like, so just to be clear, you sold it all you sold all I gave the stuff. Pretty much everything to charity. You gave it away. Yeah. You only allowed yourself 50 items. Well, it's not that, that I, the bag. I I didn't have a rule I need to have 50 just items. That was the like, goal. What can fit in my well, yeah. I don't I don't want to check luggage. And so what can fit in my carry-on? It's amazing. And so I had my tennis bag and racket in my backpack with my computer, iPad, and Kindle. And I had my carry-on with like everything that I owned, um, and which is clothes, but a very limited clothes. And how long did you do that for? How mm. long was the downgrade? Well, a year or two? I, no, four years, but I kind of still- Four years, it. wow. I, I kind of still le- lead an acid light life. Like I own nothing. Uh, the- but it took many different forms. Like form one is let's go couch surfing in France couches. And that, <laughs> that was a disaster. Um, I Why? Benjamin Franklin once said that house guests like fish start smelling after three days. Right. I, I think the problem was embedding yourself in people's lives where their core life hasn't changed doesn't actually mean they have time for you, right? Like, right. so they still have to bring the kids to school and do homework and go to work, et cetera. So my vision of like, oh, you know, we're going to play tennis from eight to 10. We're going to like have a glass of wine and remake the world from 10 to midnight every day. And <laughs> like, it was not, didn't jive with the reality. And so that didn't work. So then I moved to just hotels and Airbnbs. And then I started bringing my friends on vacation with places where there were activities for the kids during the school period. I mean, all the things that were not counter to my instincts, like I would right. never go on vacation during the school period. I mean, it's more expensive and busy. Like that's the like, and I would, I would go to like, I, I'll go survival training in the jungle in Guyana. Yeah. And, but yeah. you don't bring normal people to do yeah. that and yeah. fight the rabies infested bats and, uh, and, and the snakes. And so realize, okay, you need to go to normal destinations that are easy to get to where there are activities <laughs> for the kids that are inexpensive during right. the school year. But once I started doing that, uh, I, I created a gathering now once or twice a year with a lot of my friends who come in a rotation. So it's been a great way to reconnect with both friends and family. Uh, and so that's worked pretty well. The And you have a home base now? I, I have a home base. Um, I'm still, re- well, I try to buy a house and that turned out to be a disaster. I realized that I don't like owning stuff because it takes time. The When you own something, like if it breaks, you have to fix it. If there's a leak, you need to deal with it. You need to deal with the building. And if you rent, A, frankly, it's cheaper given the rental yields these days. But B, you just call the owner and have them deal with that. Uh, and so right now, I'm actually living out of uh, rental. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's furnished. So I don't even own anything. Like mm-hmm. I, the three things I have in that place, well, I have my computer. And beyond my computer, I have like 
photo albums that I've created. And then that's basically, I, I still own sub a hundred items probably. So I'm still very acid light from that perspective, but my life I would think is, I, I consider it to be very blessed. I mean, I go and to exotic places like survival training in the jungle mm-hmm. of Guyana and go see my family in Nice and, mm-hmm. and hang out with my friends and like Turks and Caicos and, and have all these adventures that I think are much more compelling than just right. having stuff, you know, like I don't have a watch. I don't have a car. I don't yeah. have any of these things, but who needs these things? So la- last question, I'm, I'm curious if you're just as excited about technology today as you were when you discovered your first PC back in back in Nice, and and maybe why or why not, or maybe if there's a slightly more complex answer to that simple question, then the curious. I'm actually more excited today than when I discovered my first PC, and the reason it was when I discovered my first PC, it was not obvious this was going to be a complete world-changing idea hmm. that was going to impact the lives of billions of people versus a hobby or or, or a niche asset. It's not, it's not when I was 10, when I f- fell in love with computers, I was like, based on macroeconomic analysis and trends of the future, clearly <laughs> right. this is the industry I should be focusing on because it will be amazing professionally. It was more like, I love you. <laughs> this <Yeah>. is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so the luck in my life uh, is my hobby became a multi-billion or multi-trillion dollar industry. And I ended up being at the right time at the right place with the right skills. Now, today, actually, it's way more obvious that the technology revolution is continuing, is impacting everyone's lives, is leading to massive productivity improvements. And the good news for every, anyone who's considering becoming an entrepreneur is we're at the very beginning of it. So today in 2019, 15% of commerce is online. Uh, hmm. 85% remains offline despite Amazon, et cetera. That's going to go to much more. In China today, it's already 25%. 15% is US and Western Europe. In some categories, think of like you know home renovation, like Lowe's and Home Depot. It's 99.5% offline. And many of the categories that have started to be a little bit disrupted by tech, only very small elements of the value chain have been disrupted by tech. So food ordering, with uh, Uber Eats and Seamless is a little bit online, but that's it's at the very beginning. We're at 1.5% penetration right. of things like Instacart and Uber Eats Seamless. As quality improves and costs go down, that's going to be 10x, 20x, 30x bigger than that. Um, real estate, like Discovery, has, has gone online with like the uh, Street Easies yep. and Zillow Trulia. But actually, the way we manufacture real estate today is the same way we did 200 years ago. You have like, you know, bricklayer and cement and piping. It's like everything's bespoke, nothing's scalable. Um, the same is true of like, frankly, every industry, like education. We're still educating our kids the way we, we taught kids 2,500 years ago, right? If I took Socrates from 500 BC and brought him to the world today, he would recognize almost nothing except the way we educate our kids. <laughs> A teacher of like varying quality, yeah, spewing so facts. True. I like yeah. kids of varying level of, of, of success and intelligence, right? So it makes no sense. And healthcare, we've had like negative productivity where the ever increasing costs for worse yeah. life outcomes. Public services where it's like 30 to 50% of GDP around the West. And, and we've had, again, negative productivity, nothing touched by the tech revolution. And in things like food, like, we're at the very beginning. So again, food ordering maybe has gone online, but like synthetic biology is just yeah. barely, I mean, it's not even out there for real. Things like Memphis meats, et cetera, are still more in the lapse phase. Yeah, so we have like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, but it's, again, very beginning of yeah. that. And so all of the major categories uh, are still very early in their life cycles. And you have like platform shifts that are on the verge of coming true. Like for the, as 
self-driving com- comes to the fore and, be, and 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 it's really self-driving writ large. So delivery costs, when the marginal cost of the last mile goes to zero and your delivery costs go to zero, it leads to massively profound changes in in the way societies are built. All of a sudden, you know, today I'm not going to order a coffee on Uber Eats when the $5 delivery fee trumps the $1 coffee. But if the coffee can be delivered in two minutes for free and it's hot, you know, maybe I don't have a coffee machine. Maybe I don't have a fridge. I definitely want to have a kitchen. Yeah. I mean, the way, the fact that we have kitchens makes no sense. It's, it's, it brings me back to like 1900s where people were suing their own dresses, but it doesn't make sense to allocate all that time to like artisanally preparing your own food. In the long run, we're going to have super high quality, healthy food, inexpensively created in a mass produced way that will be cheaper, better quality with no time required from you delivered whenever you want it. And so that'll change dramatically. And then all of a sudden, once you have these self-driving electric cars, well, you don't need gas stations. But if you don't have gas stations, you no longer have convenience stores. You no longer have parkings. So the way cities are designed will change dramatically. And all these second-order effects, which frankly trump the first-order effects, you know, are happening in all these other categories where we're at the very beginning. I mean, hmm. now we're seeing innovation in like nanosatellites, 3D printing, solar, that that are just at the verge of actually becoming really reality and transforming society as we know it. And so I'm more excited than I've ever been. We're at the verge of a technology revolution or in a productivity revolution that's extraordinary that will transform the lives of people for the better because it's deflationary. It makes things cheaper. Technology mm-hmm. at large makes people's quality of life better because even though our GDP per capita on average is improving at like 2% a year, things become cheaper by a lot right. quicker than that. And, and it's not captured actually in the GDP sets. You know, if communication costs divided by like a billion in the last hundred years. Uh, it used to be like one letter of, to the telegraph is like $20. And now you have like free video communications globally. And, and if anything, the GDP sets underreport the quality of life improvements because if something decreases in costs and, and price, it's actually considered as a decrease in GDP, even though the outcome is better for humanity. Right. And, right. and things are continuing. That that deflationary trend continues. Imagine how much the first cell phones cost and the first calls costs. Even in the 1970s when I grew up, like only the rich were taking planes. Today, because of technology, not improvements in the plane, but improvements in yield management systems and online reservation systems, et cetera, Plane tickets have become really inexpensive. Like everyone, including the poor, can take planes. Hmm. Car manufacturing through automation has become a lot cheaper. Cars, again, were only the rich at cars or only the rich at TVs. But that deflationary impact of technology is continuing to this day, actually not calculated or or underrepresented in the underlying stats. But like the world is becoming much better, much faster. We are living in the most prosperous and peaceful time in the history of humanity with the more opportunities than there ever been. Now, it's not to say everything is for the best in all of the possible world. I'm not Panglossian in uh, Candide uh, Voltaire terms. Uh, there are a lot of issues and we can make things a lot better and we they need to be addressed by hopefully a better set of political leaders. But at large, technology, the tech revolution, what we're doing as investors and entrepreneurs to build this better world of tomorrow is extraordinary. And that's why I choose to do this because we have we can impact the lives globally of people for the better on a dramatic scale. Fabrice, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. 
You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP.